Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Listen to the seventh verse of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. I want us to focus on this verse this morning and particularly the idea he prepared an ark to the saving of his house or his family. Noah, a godly father, made efforts to deliver his family from coming judgment. A man named Bob Moorhead wrote these words that I think are so relevant to our day. God give us men, men who are ribbed with the steel of the Holy Spirit, men who will not flinch when the battle is fiercest, men who won't acquiesce or compromise or fade when the enemy rages. God give us men who can't be bought, bartered or badgered by the enemy, men who will pay the price, make the sacrifice, stand the ground, and hold the torch high. God give us men obsessed with the principles true to your word, men stripped of self-seeking who will pay any price for freedom and go to any lengths for truth. God give us men delivered from mediocrity, men with vision high, pride low, faith wide, love deep, and patience long. Men who will dare to march to the drumbeat of a distant drummer. Men who will not surrender principles of truth in order to accommodate their peers. God give us men more interested in scars than medals, more committed to conviction than convenience. Men who will give their life for the eternal instead of indulging their lives for a moment in time. Give us men who are fearless in the face of danger, calm in the midst of pressure, bold in the midst of opposition. God give us men who will pray earnestly, work long, preach clearly, and wait patiently. God give us men whose walk is by faith, behavior is by principle, whose dreams are in heaven, whose book is the Bible. Give us men who are equal to the task. Those are the men the church needs today. I would say amen. And such a man was Noah, a man for his times. A man living in a wicked world, much like ours today. A man whose world came to an end. He was living in the last days of the world before the flood. Judgment was approaching. And therefore Noah stands as an example, a prototype to the kind of fathers and men that are needed as you and I also live in a day that is fast approaching the end times. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 6 and read the story of Noah, beginning in the fifth verse, if you will. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man and grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping things 
and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Then listen to verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And we read in verse 22, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. This is a story familiar, no doubt, to many of us this morning. But it's a story that is relevant to the age in which we live. Interestingly, the writer to the Hebrews thought that it was relevant to the age in which they lived as well. For Noah is depicted in this chapter as one of the great heroes of faith. He's one of the people who is listed in the godly remnant of the faithful down through history. People who were true to God, even though the masses of humanity around them were apostate and ungodly. Noah was a man of faith. And Noah was one of the most outstanding people that has ever lived. In fact, in the 14th chapter of the book of Ezekiel, God lists Noah together with Daniel and Job as three of the most outstanding people in the ancient world. God singles them out and says, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were to intercede before me, I would only deliver them because of their righteousness, but their prayers would not help the people to avoid judgment. Noah is mentioned with Daniel, and Job is three of the most outstanding figures who've ever lived upon the face of the earth in Ezekiel chapter 14. And he's named Noah, and that name means rest. Listen to chapter 5 of Genesis, verse 29. His father, it says, called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us. So they felt the need of comfort and rest. I mean, the earth was violent and it was a, a world of great evil and wickedness and he says this same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed and as such because his name means rest Noah is a type of Christ who came to comfort his family his people concerning all of our sorrows because of the curse of sin Jesus Christ is our Noah just as Noah saved his own family, so Jesus Christ, our rest, came to save his covenant family. So there are many wonderful parallels between Noah and Christ. So he's an outstanding figure. I want to do three things this morning. First, let's talk about Noah's faith. Secondly, let's talk about Noah's faith as a father. And thirdly, let's add another detail to that thought and talk about Noah's faith as a, an example for fathers who live in the end times or in the last days. First of all, our text says in Hebrews eleven seven, by faith Noah. Let's talk about Noah's faith. You know, faith led Noah to do some amazing and unusual things. 
In the 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth chapters of Genesis, you have the story of the deluge or the global flood. God cleansed the earth from sin and saved only eight people, Noah and his wife, Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their three wives. Eight souls were saved by water from the judgment that came upon the earth. And then two of every species of animals, two of the dog kind, two of the cat kind, two of the primate kind, two of each kind of animals, and seven of every clean beast was saved in the ark. You know that story, no doubt. And my friends, that ark was a mammoth structure. Some of you perhaps have had the opportunity to visit the replica of Noah's Ark in northern Kentucky. My family and I were able to tour that impressive site a few years ago, and I have to tell you, it is phenomenal how big the Ark was. The Ark was approximately 510 feet long. Now that's almost two football fields long. In fact, three space shuttles laid end to end would fit on the deck of the ark. Not only was it over 500 feet long, but it was 50 feet high. That's equivalent to a four or five story building. And it had a storage capacity of 450 semi-trailers. You could fit the contents on those three decks of the ark. Over three million board feet of timber was used in the construction of Noah's Ark. And it was 120 years in building. Now, usually if a person has undertaken a monumental task to build a structure, they can expect a year, maybe two years for the completion of that task. But 120 years it took to build this massive structure. And Noah did all of this working with his three boys for 120 years in a society that thought that he had lost his mind because the ark was put together and assembled on dry ground. And it had never, never rained before upon the face of the earth. According to Genesis chapter 2 verse 6, the earth was watered not by rain from the sky but by a mist that came up, no doubt, from underground springs. It had never rained before. So when Noah came preaching that a storm is coming, the people had never seen such an event. It's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. The people had no point of contact, no reference point. It seemed ludicrous. In fact, it was a circus and a spectacle and a tourist attraction, no doubt. It exposed him to tremendous mockery and ridicule. I can see parents with children saying, Noah, put a, an extra canopy on the third deck so that my children and I may enjoy a little time in the sun during the cruise that's coming up. Noah's faith brought persecution and ridicule upon him. And by the way, that fits with the theme of Hebrews, doesn't it? That your faith may expose you to opposition and mockery from the world. So his faith led him to do some unusual things. What kind of faith would it have taken to undertake such a task that would be 120 years from start to finish before it would see completion? And especially whenever you were exposed to daily ridicule 
from the watching public. You know people didn't just talk behind Noah's back, but you know that they came out in droves to watch the progress, and it must have taken tremendous faith in God for Noah to keep going. The temptation to quit no sooner than he had gotten started would have been very strong, much less 50 or 60 years into the project when so little had been accomplished and so much remained to be done, seeing that it had never rained and that the whole idea of a flood was foreign to these folks. Noah's faith led him to do some unusual things. And may I say that faith will lead you and me to do some unusual things so far as the carnal mind of man is concerned. The world will not understand why we do some of the things that we do. The very fact that you've met here this morning to hear a man get up and pontificate from a book that is thousands of years old seems very foolish and strange to the watching world. I mean, the world says, I can't think of a greater waste of time than to sit in church and to sing a bunch of antiquated songs together. I mean, don't you know people don't sing together anymore? And to, for somebody to get down on his knees and to talk to someone that you can't see, and then to open a book that is so many years old and to presume to tell these stories and make application, it just seems preposterous to me, the natural man would say. Faith led Noah to do some very unusual things. I want to say that Noah's faith, secondly, is based on the Word of God. Now, Noah didn't have a Bible like we do, but God spoke directly to Noah, and it was as much God's Word as the written Word that we have today. Or perhaps I should say the written Word we have today is as much the Word of God as the audible voice of God to Noah back in the day. Listen to Genesis chapter 6, verse 13. And God said to Noah, now God spoke audibly, the end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And God told Noah to make an ark, and he told him the kind of wood to make it from, go for wood. He said, you shall make rooms in the ark, you shall pitch it within and without with pitch. That's a kind of waterproof substance like tar that would insulate the contents on the inside from the water on the outside. And God told him the fashion after which to make the ark. The length of it should be 300 cubits. Again, that's a little over 500 feet in our measurements. And you're to put a door on the side of the ark, a window in the top of the ark, because I'm bringing a flood of waters. Now, how did Noah know that this storm was coming? Well, God spoke to him. The word of God, the revelation of God. Noah's faith was based on the word of God. Verse 18 says, although I'm going to destroy all flesh, but with thee I will establish my covenant. Notice God's discriminating and distinguishing grace. With thee I will establish my covenant. Now God is a covenant maker and a covenant keeper. Our God interacts with his creatures in the form of covenants, that is, Binding agreements, legally binding contracts. God says, I'm going to make a promise to you. And God, we know, cannot lie. He cannot break his promise. And God says, thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons, and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee, and every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort, shalt thou bring into the ark. And somebody says, how could the ark contain every 
cat and every dog, no, just two of every dog kind. And you see in the genetic code of the dog kind, you have every different breed from that species of dogs and two of every cat kind, you know. You say, well, how could he fit two dinosaurs on the ark? Well, you know what a grown-up dinosaur is before it's a grown-up dinosaur? It's a baby dinosaur, right? So the Lord brought these animals to Noah, and he preserved the fowls after their kind, the cattle after their kind. The word kind is important here. It means species, the dog kind, and the cow kind, and the deer kind, and on and on it goes. And God said, so Noah's faith was based on God's word. And Noah did all that God had commanded him. His faith was informed and actuated by the word of God. And I want to say Noah's faith was an evidence of grace. In Genesis 6, 9, again, it says, Noah was a just man. That means a righteous man. Now, we know that people are not just in and of themselves. That is, nobody is born into this world righteous. We're born what? Sinners. Ecclesiastes 7, 19, there's not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. So where you find just people, you can rest assured that they are righteous because God has imputed the righteousness of Jesus Christ to them. They're just because he has justified them, declared them to be just by virtue of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. In other words, Noah was a just man. The fact he's righteous is an evidence that he's been touched by the grace of God. You show me somebody who's living a righteous life, I'll show you somebody that gives evidence that God has changed their hearts, quickened them. Noah's faith is an evidence of grace, and it says he was perfect in his generations. Now, there are only, and I want you to remember that the word perfect in the Bible rarely, now sometimes it does, but rarely means flawless. Usually it means spiritually mature, it means integrated, it means making progress in every area of his life at the same time. That is, there is no duplicity about him. He's a man who's utterly sincere, he's spiritually mature, and he's living a godly life. All of this is evidence of grace. So when it says in Genesis 6, 8 that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, before Noah found grace, grace had found Noah. That's what I'm saying this morning. And by the way, before you and I find grace in the eyes of the Lord, my beloved, don't you want to find grace? You know, come to the throne of grace where we, we may find grace to help, Hebrews 4, 16. Do you want to find grace? Before you find grace, I want to tell you grace has found you. And it found Noah. God found Jacob in a waste howling wilderness. He found Noah in his sinful state and changed him. And then after that, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And by the way, if you found grace in the eyes of the Lord, if God looks upon you graciously, it's because he has been pleased to make you one of his children, to give you faith. And now he's going to honor that faith. And watch Noah's case now. Let's Move from Noah's faith, let's add another brushstroke to the picture. Let's talk about Noah's faith now as a father. Because our text in Hebrews 11 says, By faith Noah did all of this for the saving of his house or his family. Noah is a wonderful father. And that's what we read in the narrative there in Genesis again. For in the next chapter, Genesis 7, verse 1, it says this, And the Lord said unto Noah, 
Come thou and all thy house. Now when the Bible speaks of someone's house, it's talking about their family, generally. Not their rafters and timbers and foundation and shingles and windows, but it's talking about their family, you know. When God says, come with all of your house into the ark, for thee I have seen righteous before me in this generation. Notice God gave that command to Noah, and he expected Noah to pass it on to his family. It doesn't say that God spoke to Shem, Ham, and Japheth, or to Mrs. Noah. It just says God said to Noah, come thou and your family into the ark. The implication is that God expects Noah to carry this message to his family and to say it's time to enter the structure that we've built. Noah as a father who influences his family for their long-term good, for their protection, for their safety, for their deliverance from the judgment that's coming is a wonderful example to every father today. Because the fact is we're living in a world much like Noah's. And we need godly fathers who foresee the danger ahead and who are willing and ready to take steps right now to provide for the protection of their children from the judgment that is coming upon our ungodly world. And perhaps we're seeing the beginnings of it in society today. But how we need fathers who are taking the lead like Noah. Now let's talk about some of his godly traits as a father. The first one is that Noah is an example for fathers today in the sense that his devotion to God is expressed in these words in Genesis 6-9, and Noah walked with God. Now we noticed that expression just recently in the fifth chapter about Enoch. Enoch walked with God, and it tells us that Enoch was not the only one who practiced consistent daily fellowship with God. He walked with him. Now, walking is what kind of activity? It's unspectacular, isn't it? If I were to uh, get into to a fighter jet and fly along the coastline, many people would stop and watch because it attracts attention. If I were to run in a race down the street, there would be people wondering what I'm in such a hurry for. But if I am just going to walk down the road or walk down the street or by the beach, People won't notice because it's not spectacular. May I say, to walk with God means that in the ho-hum, the mundane, the routines of daily life, nothing really spectacular, this person is walking in fellowship with God. God is my companion, and I'm living with him and for him, and I'm relying upon him, but I, I'm not making a big fuss about it. It's talking about consistency and sincerity and authenticity Noah walked with God. I believe Noah was a man of prayer. I believe he was a man who meditated upon the word of God. I believe he was a man who tried to do the right thing and who stayed in close contact with God and how crucial that is for every one of us. Do you have a quiet place where you can go at the beginning of each day, my friends, to spend time with the Lord, just you and the Lord, May I say that's crucial for fathers. Now, it's critical for every Christian. Would you say that every mother, every young child needs to walk with God? You need to read your Bibles and pray and sing hymns and be mindful and aware of the Lord's presence with you on a day-by-day basis, even though you can't see him. You see, we do it by faith. By faith, Enoch walked with God, not by sight. 
He said, well, if I could see him, it'd make it easier to be consistent. No, we, we must live by faith. We know he's real. Even though we can't perceive him empirically, we can't experience him with our senses. We know God is real by faith, and we're conscious of his presence each day that we live. That's so crucial not only for every one of us, but especially for fathers. Fathers, if you're going to influence your family, it's critical first and foremost that you be a person who practices the discipline of godliness and daily devotion to the Lord by walking with him every day. That's the first thing that's outstanding about Noah. Secondly, concerning his faith as a father, not only was he a devout man, but he was a reverent man. In our text in Hebrews eleven seven, it says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear. Now, interestingly, this verse couples the apparently opposite concepts of faith and fear in the same verse. By faith, he moved with fear. Now, faith will, for the most part, get rid of fear. You know, what time I'm afraid, I will trust in God, says Psalm 56.3. Perfect love casteth out fear. Think of a little baby or a little infant sitting on his mother or father's lap. And that child knows that he or she is loved. That child doesn't have a fear in the world because perfect love casts out fear. It dispels any fear. And yes, my friends, faith is the answer to the fear of man, the fear of the future. But I'll tell you this, if you fear God, you won't have to be afraid of anything else. You see, if God is real to you, if he's more real than a crash in the economy, if he's more real than a virus or disease that is spreading, if he's more real than the enemy's artillery and a godless government, if God is more real to you than the things that go bump in the night, by trusting in him and knowing that he is there, you don't have to be afraid of anything else. The fear of God is the only legitimate fear, the only healthy fear. Is there such a thing as a healthy fear? You parents know there is. You teach your child, don't go in the road. Why? You say, well, that's cruel. You shouldn't teach your child that. Well, that's a healthy fear. It's a fear of the danger, the peril, the potential harm that could be done. You want a child to learn to fear the fire, to fear the water, to fear the road in a certain healthy sense. So there's a healthy fear for the Christian, and it's the fear of God. Now, I'm not afraid he's going to beat me and punish me. I'm not handcuffed by my fear, paralyzed. Sometimes fear will paralyze somebody. The fear of God should not paralyze us, but it should make us cautious. Noah moved with fear. I suggest this means he had a reverential fear for God. He held God in reverence. And if I were to define the fear of God, I would define it like this. It is a holy caution, a holy caution to avoid sin and a humble carefulness lest we displease the Lord. It's a matter of taking God seriously. Now, I think it's true that many people do not take God seriously. They think God is just somebody a preacher talks about on Sunday, but they don't really take him seriously. I'm telling you, God intends to be taken seriously. Just like you take your dad or your mom seriously if you're a child. 
You know, when Father says it's time to get ready for bed, you know that he means business. Now, it's not a slavish fear where you're afraid he's going to beat you within an inch of your life. But it is a fear of respect. It's reverence. It's honor shown to the person in authority. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the fear of God. As a father, Noah took God's warning of a coming judgment seriously. And his children knew that God was real to Noah. And they respected him for that. So Noah's a good example for a father in his devotional life. He walked with God. And in terms of his reverence for God, he took sin seriously. He took the chastening rod of God seriously. (laughs) You know, we're in the next chapter of Hebrews, chapter 12, we're going to read about God's chastening rod, how he disciplines his children. We should take that seriously. And he took God's word seriously, and we should take God's word seriously as well, my beloved. That's the fear of God. Let me give you an illustration. Think of a cruise ship captain, and he has received the news that the cruise ship has failed and it's going to sink. So the cruise ship captain gets on the intercom and he says, all of you second class passengers have been upgraded automatically to first class. Now he doesn't tell you why. You can have anything to eat that you want and you may go anywhere that you want on the ship and you have access to the special clubs that only the first class passengers had before now. Just enjoy yourself. Eat, drink, and be merry. Now, you don't know why he's done this, but you say to each other, my, he's a good fella. This captain is very nice to us. And I am just so happy we took this cruise. But then the first mate comes along and he says, batten the hatches, gather your belongings, and find a life raft, and put your life jackets on because danger is coming. And you say, wait, we're enjoying ourselves. He just upgraded us to first class and you are troubling us with this negative news. Go away. We don't like what you're saying. The captain's a good fellow, but you're an enemy. Who is doing you more good? The person who's warning you or the person who has coddled you and treated you like you're a king? The person, my friends, who is your true friend is the person who's warning you that judgment is coming and you need to make preparations, take steps to avoid the danger. You're in danger, and you may not be aware of it. That's the person who's your true friend. You see, Noah was that kind of person. He was a preacher of righteousness. So 2 Peter 2 verse 5, he took God's warning seriously because of his reverence, his fear of God. Thirdly, Noah's a good example for fathers in terms of his integrity. When it says he was perfect in his generations in Genesis 6, 9 again, it means that he was a man of integrity. Proverbs 20, verse 7 says, A just man walketh in his integrity, and his children are blessed after him. I think integrity is a rare commodity anymore, but integrity means being the same person in private that you appear to be in public. Integrity is being a person who's for real who's not put on. Now, all of us have areas in our lives where we don't quite measure up to what we aspire to be. You say, you're a hypocrite. Yes, we're all hypocrites in a certain degree because we're under construction, you know? I have around my neck, whether you can see it this morning or not, a sign that says, under construction. Be patient with me. God isn't finished with me yet. (laughs) I'm still in process of becoming the person I ought to be, but... 
Integrity is that there's utter sincerity. This person is trying to be true to his convictions in every area of his life. Noah was such a man. And that, may I say, is what made him credible to his children. Why would they believe him? Why would Shem, Ham, and Japheth help him hammer that ark? Why would they build the rooms? Why would his wife allow him to be the talk of the town in a ridiculous way? Why would they go into the ark with him when it still had never rained upon the earth? Because they knew that he was a man of integrity, and it made him credible. Now contrast that with Lot. You remember when God was about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot went to his children and his relatives and he said, let's get out while the getting's good. Because judgment is coming and what did they say? It says they laughed him to scorn. He seemed to them as one that mocked. They said, what are you talking about? Judgment's not coming. You're a hypocrite. You've been living like the rest of us. And Lot had lost his witness because of his compromise. Noah hadn't. He's a man who, when he spoke, his children, even though it wasn't popular, knew that their dad was a trustworthy man because he's a man of faith. And then I want you to think about his courage. Now, what are the qualities of a godly father we learn from Noah? His devotion to God, his spirituality, his reverence for God, his integrity, and his courage that was fueled by his convictions. Our text says... By his faith, he condemned the world. Peter, again, calls him a preacher of righteousness. Did you know Noah's ark was not only a visual witness that something terrible was coming, but Noah was himself a verbal witness. He was preaching to the people, calling on them to repent. Judgment is coming. You're not living right. As he hammered and the crowd assembled, you can rest assured he talked to them and preached to them. And they thought he was off his rocker. They thought he was lost his mind. It took a lot of courage. You say, he's crazy. No, he's courageous. Because he's a man of conviction. And he's preaching to them. And you say, well, Brother Mike, just a minute. I thought the ark was only made to accommodate eight people. What if they had all repented? He's preaching, calling them to repent. What if they had repented from their sins? What would have happened? They couldn't get into the ark because it was only capable of taking care of the animals and then Noah and his family. What if they'd repented? You know what would have happened? The same thing that happened at Nineveh. When Jonah preached judgment is coming and the city repented, God spared them of the judgment. Because they repented, he retracted his threat of coming judgment. I fully believe that had the people repented at the preaching of Noah, the flood would not have happened. This man was a man of courage, and he preached, but they mocked him. So the thing that stands out about Noah as a father is his leadership of his family. He took the initiative. He took the first step. He foresaw that trouble was coming, and he said, we need to start now to make preparations. He took the lead. And he made preparations for the future. You know, Proverbs 13.22 says, A just man lays up an inheritance for his children's children. He, he, he prepares for the future. He was hardworking. What a good example for a father. I mean, it took a lot of effort to carry that lumber and to hoist it into place. How did he do it all? He, was, he must have been brilliant. Manpower. They probably made certain, you know, levers and pulleys 
and used very simple machines to try to get the task done, but it is a tremendous accomplishment. That ark, my beloved, was made before they had bulldozers, before they had forklifts or heavy machinery, you know, but they did it. And then not only did he do all of that, but he communicated God's word to his family, and he was believable. They believed him because he was credible. He must have talked to them and made his case, and they listened. That's what we need fathers to do today. You know, we need fathers to teach God's word to their families today. He said, well, they've got a mom to do that. I'm too busy with other things. No, my friends, we need fathers to take the lead. We need fathers to realize how serious the world is and to take steps to protect their children. And that brings us to the final point this morning, Noah's faith as an example for fathers who live in the last days. For in Matthew 24, 37, Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days when the Son of Man comes. Jesus made Noah his model of eschatology the prototype for living in the last days. And Peter does the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 5. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that is, the scoffers in the last days, that by the word of God the heavens were of old. So they're ignorant of Genesis 1 and the story of creation, that God spoke and made the universe. And they're ignorant of another event in history, not only the original creation, but that the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. They're ignorant of the flood. Did you know if you take out the possibility of the global flood, of Noah's flood, it's impossible to explain rock formate geological formations and many things in our world today. The flood is the answer key to unlocking the mysteries of the past in so many areas of the modern world in which we live, understanding that the world was destroyed by catastrophe. It wasn't a meteor that hit it from outer space. It wasn't aliens who came. It was a global flood and divine judgment that changed this world so that it's not the same world that God made. That is, it's different in many respects. It operates differently. It's not a greenhouse anymore, a, a tropical climate. You say, how do you explain that woolly mammoths were found in Siberia in the frozen tundra with fresh buttercups in their lips and undigested vegetation in their bellies? How do you explain that? Well, you explain it in terms of they must have been frozen suddenly, instantaneously, in a running motion, and they still had undigested vegetation in their bellies, buttercups on their lips, woolly mammoths found in the frozen tundra of Siberia You know what happened? Because after the flood, my friends, the poles of the earth froze. There's a great ice age. It happened as a result of the judgment of God upon this world. And he says the scoffers that will live in the last days, and there are a bunch of them around us today, are willingly ignorant. That is, deliberately, they ignore the evidence. They're willingly ignorant of creation, the evidence for creation, and of the global flood. And he says, but the heavens and the earth, which are now, so the world that exists now, today, by the same word are kept in store. God in his providence is sustaining the universe today, but they are reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition. Just like God judged the world with water in Noah's day, he's going to judge the world with fire in our day in the modern world. What he's telling us in this chapter, my friends, 
is that Noah is an example of what it's going to be like living in the last days. And we're getting there. I don't know how close the second coming of Christ is, but my friends, this world is getting more and more wicked where every imagination and thought of man's heart is only evil continually. And in a world like that, God has pledged that judgment is coming. You know, don't you, that our world is headed for judgment. This world is not going to last forever. It's going to be incinerated. It'll be judged with fire because of its wickedness. And you know, God never executed judgment on any society without giving it adequate warning. He sent Moses to Pharaoh to warn him that judgment was coming. He sent Jeremiah to the ungodly nation of Judah. He sent Jonah to Nineveh. And he sent Noah to the antediluvian world to say judgment is coming. And our world, again, my beloved, is headed for judgment. And not only do we, does faith take hold of the promises of God, that's the positive, and I love that, but faith takes seriously the warnings of coming judgment. And a father living in the last days knows that this is serious business to raise children in this kind of climate. Therefore, like Noah, this kind of godly father will take pains to arrange for his family's protection. And you say, well, Brother Mike, where may that safety and protection be found in a world that's going to be judged by God in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? You may be interested to know that 1 Peter 3.21 teaches that Noah's Ark, which was the protection for his family in the midst of the judgment of the flood, is a figure, according to 1 Peter 3, verse 21, or a type of gospel baptism into the fellowship of the church. The like figure, says Peter, whereunto baptism doth also now save us. Just as Noah's ark saved them, so that's a figure, he says, of how baptism saves us. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the only safety from divine judgment in the end times. My beloved, do you know what we need to do to avoid the judgment that's coming upon this world? We need to get closer to the Lord. And you won't do that anywhere better than you can in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through the waters of baptism, to profess faith in Him, that's the only safety from the judgment that's coming upon this ungodly world in the last days. That safety will be found in the Lord's church. So children, come into the ark and rest in your Noah for living in these turbulent and troublesome last days. May God make every father here today a faithful Noah to his family to prepare an ark, as it were, to the saving of your house. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.